Our second reading of scripture comes from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 10, beginning with the 25th verse. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three, do you think, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Here ends our second reading. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, every once in a while, there are certain issues that I think uh, need to be discussed in church. Certain times, things come to the fore and are such issues in society that to ignore them would be uh, a dereliction of duty, if you will. And I think that one of those issues, or sort of the main issue that's to the fore right now that we have to think about deeply, is the issue of immigration in the United States. Not only do we have an immigration crisis on our border, uh, which is present and going on day to day, that we see about in the papers and read about, we have a president who ran for office uh, beginning his his campaign, uh, making immigration his signature issue, and he has followed through with that. Uh, throughout his administration. And also, of course, it's important for us in this city of Houston because we live in the most diverse city in the country. And it's diverse because of the immigrant communities that live here. Uh, We are surrounded by such a rich diversity of people from all different countries, uh, both those uh, who are here legally, who are documented, and those who are undocumented. I was just standing outside my townhouse the other day and looked down, the, looked down and two townhouses down, they're redoing the stucco and there are all these workers moving around and speaking in Spanish. And if I were to guess, I would say that they're immigrants. And I, if I were to guess further, I'd say that most of them are probably undocumented. So yeah, these issues matter. 
And there's always a risk, though, bringing up an issue that's highly politicized in society. It's a risk of annoying certain members of the congregation who don't like talking about politics. That does happen, even in a place like First Congregational. Uh, You also run the risk, of course, of uh, speaking when you have a bias. We all have bias on every major issue, and I obviously have my own biases, as do you. And it's hard not to have your biases cloud your opinion. So, you know, there's some reluctance talking about issues that can be contentious. Plus, of course, I'm a preacher. I'm not a public policy person. So... uh, I have to confess a certain degree of ignorance on these issues. Uh, I know that there are those here in this congregation, when I'm done, I'm sure that people will say, but John, you messed, you left up this part, and you didn't do this right, which is good. It's one of the reasons why I love preaching to an intelligent congregation. But nevertheless, I think it's something that we need to, we need to address. And uh, there's one easy place to start. There's one thing that we can just get out of the way up front without much hesitation, and that is that uh, the actions... Uh, The Trump administration on our southern border uh, are immoral and wrong, and you can't justify them by any reading of scripture that I'm familiar with. So any time you have administration that intentionally separates children uh, from their parents uh, and intentionally traumatizes children to use as a deterrent uh, against others is cruel, uh, it is immoral, and it is wrong. Um, The Trump administration justified that policy when they began it last year uh, by citing old precedents, and yet administrations in the past did not follow the policies that the Trump administration did. It was an active choice by the administration to traumatize uh, children. And I don't know how one could possibly justify that in the Bible. Uh, Other things, uh, in 1951, there was a protocol dealing with refugees and asylum seekers uh, that grew out of the Second World War and the displacements of the Second World War. The U.S. was one of the original signatories of this protocol on refugees and asylum seekers. It was revised in 67, and it's been revised again. And it's very clear that when someone comes to your border, to a port of entry, uh, whether it be an airport, a port, uh, anywhere of your borders, and presents themselves for asylum, you have to process that asylum claim and receive them as an asylum seeker. It is, that is the way it is in international law and in U.S. law as well. Uh, the United States is currently in violation of that. The United States currently is preventing people from crossing the border um, at ports of entry and uh, presenting themselves for asylum. And we were down in Matamoros this past week, and we saw the list, actually, uh, next to the bridge on the Mexican side, a uh, list of the names of the people uh, that are there, and when, they can, and when their name gets called, they can present themselves. That is a blatant violation of international law, uh, and wrong. Uh, and then also the conditions that are on the southern border. The conditions that we've all read about in the newspapers, uh, the overcrowding, the unsanitary conditions, uh, the ref- basically refrigerated detention facilities for children where the lights are on all the time, um, the fact that people have died in U.S. custody uh, because of poor care of uh, the United States government of these people, these things are reprehensible. Uh, and again, the reports of these conditions come from within the Department of Homeland Security, and even the vice president, when he was down in the border the last couple of days, uh, acknowledged the fact that more needs to be done and these conditions are horrible. So just to start off with, I want to say all of those things are the easy things to talk about. And I think they're pretty obviously wrong. And if you want to argue for them, that's fine. I'm always open to talking about these things. I'd be happy to. Just make sure you bring your Bible with you. (laughs) Now, the bigger issue, though, the issue that I think is uh, is, is trickier uh, and one that underlies a lot of these discussions 
uh, on both the right and the left, is a question of what we do about immigration more broadly. What kind of immigration policy makes sense in the United States? So while the Trump administration's policies are particularly cruel um, and immoral, uh, they do represent a particular stance on immigration that's worthwhile wrestling with um, in terms of a policy perspective. What do we do about immigration in this country? I have to admit, I myself am torn over this. I was up in Milwaukee a couple weeks ago, as you know, at the General Synod, and there are certain people there that are advocating for uh, an abolishing of the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency and also uh, what's called by various people in the press open borders. And I sort of, I have to be honest, I'm uncomfortable with that. I'm torn over it. On the one hand, I think like most Americans, at least on the favor of in terms of broader immigration policy, like most Americans, I'm someone who celebrates the immigrant. After all, that's what we are about as a country. All of us, uh, with the exception of those who uh, claim indigenous descent, all of us are immigrants in this country. Unlike other countries, our country is not based on ethnicity. Our country is based on an ideal. An ideal that you can come to this land and make something of yourself. We are a land of opportunity, at least that's what we're supposed to be about. And so, yes, of course, we are a land of immigrants and we should want to welcome immigrants. So I mean, that part of me wants to have a broad embrace of immigration. That part that's crucial to who we are as a people. Another part of me that really wants to broaden immigration policies are the very real uh, travesties and sufferings that are going on that are leading people to want to immigrate to the United States. Many of these things, of course, are our responsibility as Americans. So to take one example, as you know, the, the, the major immigration influx into the country these days is from the so-called Northern Triangle. So Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, just south of the, of the Mexican border. And take the example of El Salvador. Here's a country that uh, had a horribly unequal society, uh, lots of um, injustices that went on there, largely sponsored by uh, American business interests in El Salvador. Uh, this leads to a leftist movement that starts a civil war in El Salvador uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. The United States government was actively sending one to two million dollars a day to support uh, the government of El Salvador and to provide them with arms. Uh, the United Nations estimated that during the time of the El Salvadoran or the, of the Salvadoran civil war, uh, some 85 percent of the fatalities were committed by the government, not by the leftist rebels. Uh, so the United States was supporting that actively with arms. Um, as a result of the destabilization of El Salvador at the time, uh, several hundred thousand people left El Salvador to come to the United States, and the United States, acknowledging some of the role that it had in the violence there, uh, gave what's known as Temporary Protected Status, or TPS, to these Salvadoran immigrants coming to the United States, many of whom ended up in Los Angeles. It was in Los Angeles where a number of these immigrants who, not being able to find active work, ended up falling into gang life. And they ended up naming their gang after places in Los Angeles. That gang, uh, that gang named, uh, gained the name MS-13. Later on, um, as people in MS-13 were apprehended by authorities and then deported, uh, MS-13 was exported from the United States to San Salvador. And in the process, became significantly more violent. And now El Salvador is very much a failed state and MS-13, particularly in the capital, pretty much runs the state and extorts money from people 
uh, and has a reign of terror in that country. It's hard to look at the situation in El Salvador and not see American handprints all over it. So you see these situations, and it's like, okay, we have some sort of responsibility here. Then there's the issue of undocumented people in this country, also part of the immigration issue. And, you know, I mean, as it's pointed out, there are usually estimated, say, 11 million undocumented immigrants. Some estimates go as high as 15 million undocumented people in the country. Um, again, the primary way that people, are, that people get into this country who are undocumented is they come in with a travel visa and overstay a travel visa. That's actually the most common way people are here uh, without papers. But, like, what do we do about this? Again, uh, we can't deport 11 million people, both practically uh, and also morally. Like, we don't want a fascist state of people banging down doors and taking people away throughout our communities. Within Houston, it's estimated there are several hundred thousand undocumented people within the city of Houston. Think of what it would be like if several hundred thousand people were rounded up all at the same time and taken away from their families, many of whom are here legally. Not to mention the fact this would also be you know, massively detrimental to our economy. Try to get your lawn done or work done in your house or go sit down at a meal and you order food and no food shows up. Um, that's what happens when you don't have this, these integral you know, people in our community who are integral to the functioning of our community. And yet because we allow people uh, no path to any sort of legal residency in the United States, uh, you end up creating a permanent underclass that gets exploited uh, by various people in the country. There really is no way in which this large and undocumented population in the United States is healthy for our country or moral. So yeah, I want to do something about it. So there are lots of arguments for broadening our immigration. I get that. But there are also arguments against it. And I get that too. Uh, one of the things that we struggle with in the United States is the so-called issue of the working poor. Your people care about poverty, I know. You care about justice issues. We have a large group of people who work and yet have a hard time making ends meet. What is the most effective way of raising wages and living standards of those who are at the bottom of the income scale? Market forces. The easiest way to do it is to restrict the labor supply. When the labor supply is restricted, is restricted wages go up. We saw this in the 1990s. We're seeing it today. The last couple of years have seen dramatic wage growth. Why? Because the unemployment rate is very low. The labor supply is restricted. That leads to an increase of wages. It's a far more effective way to raise wages than having a minimum wage, aka some sort of wage floor, or by implementing and or by expanding the earned income tax credit or other federal benefits. The best way is to actually restrict the labor supply. And so when we restrict immigration, that actually helps raise wages. When was the first time the United States ended open borders, so-called open borders? Uh, that phrase is so loaded, but I, I don't know. It's kind of a fun phrase to use. <laughs> it gets abused by people, so why not use it? Uh, so again, the first Immigration Restriction Act was the uh, Exclusion Act in the 1880s, uh, particularly of Chinese people. That was the very first time immigration was restricted. Um, but the major restriction of immigration came in 1924. And it is not a coincidence that from 1924 onwards, you started to see strengthening of unions and strengthening of wages and, and the growth of folks on the lower end of the income scale. That, that, that's, that's not accidental. So, yeah, you open up immigration stuff and you've got a justice issue there. Then there's the whole aspect of um, I'm someone who believes in a strong social welfare network net. I, I don't want people to starve in the country. I want people to have basic medical care, etc. Um, but realistically, if we were to just swing the doors wide open, there are a lot of people who would come on flowing in, especially initially. 
You know how long the line is to get a visa, a green card, in embassies around the world to the United States? It's a years-long waiting list. If you just opened up the doors, you'd have literally millions of people flooding in the next day. You'd have to find housing for, health care for, jobs for, education for. It'd be a major issue, not a small one. So yeah, there's some arguments against that. And again, the argument that people make about a path to legal status for people who are undocumented is oftentimes made by people who got into the country legally. Because it took them years and cost them a lot of money to get in the country legally. And then all of a sudden they see people sneaking across the border. It makes them angry. I don't know if you've talked to people who are immigrants who are actually angry about undocumented people, but I've talked to several. I mean, there are arguments to be made. Hey, this just isn't right. I get that. I will also note there are arguments against immigration that I think are nonsense and stupid, and I'm going to call them out. One argument you see, oh, we can't let these immigrants in because they're destroying our culture. Or going to take over our culture. The reason why I think this is, this is amusing for me is because I love history, as you know, and I've read history stuff, and this same argument has come up again and again and again and again and again and again throughout history, and it's never proven true. When the Irish came to the United States in the first wave after the potato famine in the 1840s, you had these cries, what's going to happen? The country should be taken over by the Pope. <laughs> You're going to have this sort of shadow government within the government that's going to be run by the Pope and the papacy from Rome. It's entirely un-American. These arguments were everywhere in the 1840s and 50s. And they sound really similar to those people who make this argument about, oh, when the Muslims come in, there's going to be Sharia law, and all of a sudden there's going to be this state within a state. I mean, it's like the exact same argument. You should go read, I mean, you could just like take out Irish and put in, you know, Muslims. It's the same thing. You know, or arguments about racial impurities. I mean, again, you would just read these arguments in the past about, oh, no, you know, these, these waves of Italian immigrants are going to ruin our racial, you know, purity. There's a reason why, again, you had the KKK being so strong in the 1920s. It was largely an anti-immigrant thing, actually, in the 1920s, that, that wave of the 1920s. Uh, obviously, also anti-African-American, but it was also largely anti-immigrant. In the, in the 1850s, in 1854, the leading political party that gained seats in 1854, anybody? This is a great quiz question for the historians out there. Exactly, a party called the American Party, formerly known as the Know Nothing Party, whose sole platform was kick out the immigrants, specifically the Irish, and they swept all the seats in Massachusetts. We've been here before, people, and you know what? We've survived, and we've gotten better and stronger for it. So those types of arguments about cultural sort of invasion, I just can't stand, because they're just plain false. You see other versions of them, too. I, I read these memes, and I, I, my head like, begins to explode as I see them about, oh, the Democrats want to increase immigrants into the country so they can get more Democratic voters. And I'm just like, head exploding. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when someone posted this, I remember commenting, I'm like, you realize people who come in the country either legally or illegally right away are not citizens and therefore cannot vote. I mean, that's, I mean it's not, it's, this isn't a complicated thing. Um, and then, you know, there's plenty of immigrant groups that, you know, go all over the political spectrum or just plain don't show up to the polls. <laughs> I mean, this notion that you get more immigrants, you get more Democrats, is just plain not true. Um, it's factually incorrect. So, yeah, so we've got these different arguments. And so you go back and forth, what do we do, what makes sense, what doesn't. You know, and you get into good arguments. Does this make sense? Does it not? And this is where the Trump administration right now is actually, in many ways, a, an abhorrent distraction from the larger issue that we have to discuss. And then, of course, we get to uh, 
we get to the Bible. And this is, uh, you know, I like the Bible for a lot of reasons. Um, One of which is that it's very good about calling me out on my things. It's very good about challenging me um, and pushing me to think more deeply about some of my own biases. So we read this text for today, this famous text of the Good Samaritan, which is just an electionary for today. I didn't, I didn't pick this. It came up in the lectionary. And, you know, you know the story. There's a certain man, average dude, is going from Jerusalem down to Jericho along that 17, 18 mile journey through these rocky grounds down some 2,000 feet of elevation and he gets jumped by robbers and beaten up and left, left for dead. And a priest is walking down the road. And remember, for the priests... To touch a dead body is to defile a body and makes them impure. So the priest is like seeing the dead body and is like, you know, I could be impure if I touch that body. That really, you know, it's back and forth. I got to figure out. I'm torn on these issues. I'm just going to move on. And a Levite comes down. He's like, you know, I am super busy. I would really help that guy, but I would miss my appointment in Jericho. So I'm going to have to say no. And then the Samaritan, this person who is a foreigner, who's hated ethnically, uh, this person who's different religiously, the Samaritan is the one who not only binds up his wounds, gives him his own horse to ride on, pays for his lodging, and cares for him. Who is the one who's the neighbor, the one who shows mercy? And it gets to me because I can hear the priest saying, oh, there are different sides of the immigration debate. Don't worry about it. I can see arguments pro and con from the immigration debate. And I sit there and I just see this person lying on the side of the road and I, I don't know. This past week when we were down in McAllen, Texas, one of the more moving places we went to was a, a respite center run by Catholic Charities. And you walk in this building and you're immediately hit by the odor, by the smell. Because again, there are a thousand people cramped in this area. And there's a limited number of showers for people to use. And you see people lining up to get food, and the food line has got hundreds of people long, families of all different compositions, nearly every one of them from this northern triangle that we were talking about. Um, These are all people also, by the way, who had already passed a credible fear test for asylum in the United States. So when you present yourselves for asylum, uh, you get processed, and then then someone from immigration questions you to figure out whether or not you actually have a real case, whether or not you have legitimate fear to flee your country. Every single person in that room had passed a credible fear test. Every single one of those people had their lives at stake such that they had to flee their countries. Uh, And they were waiting to go on to sponsors. And you look at these people. I looked at these people. The journey that they'd been on, the length of the journey they'd been on, the struggles they'd been on in their home country, what it must have been like. And again, you read The Good Samaritan, and it's like, I don't think there's like, there's not like option A and B here. You know, I was talking to Charlotte Haney in the car, and she was telling me a story from when her time working in Mexico, this Catholic priest that she had interacted with uh, who had a parish down on the southern Mexican border. So when people came across the border, this priest would see people on their way up to the United States. And uh, he said apparently the women would come to him, and they'd ask him for two things, um, for condoms and for morning-after pills because uh, they knew they'd get raped on the way up to the border. 
and yet conditions were so bad in their home country, they were willing to endure sexual assault in order to have the chance to make it to the United States. Think of how bad things must be in your home country to do that, to willingly go through sexual assault. You know, or we went, uh, another spot we went to is this place called uh, La Posada. This is a facility that when people have passed their credible fear test, they need a sponsor in the country in order to stay and go to their trial. And this group of nuns uh, set up this place where people who didn't have a sponsor could come and the nuns would serve as their sponsor. And so while we were there, one of the people that was showing us around is this woman who was from Zimbabwe. And she had been involved in opposition political work against Mugabe in Zimbabwe. And the local opposition party had then beaten her up. She had fled her hometown, gone to a different place. Uh, A few years later, they found out that she was there, tracked her down, beat her up again, and raped her. She then fled to South Africa and was put on a plane where she thought she was going to Ireland. And instead, turns out she landed in Los Angeles. And when the flight crew informed her that, oh, by the way, you're in Los Angeles, she said, where's Los Angeles? She had never heard of Los Angeles. <laughs> um, and so she arrived there, uh, and she talked about the grilling that the immigration people put her through to make sure she's not making up the story of where she was coming from. Finally, they, they finally believed her, but she had no place to go. So she started writing letters to different places, and La Posada in South Texas uh, agreed to accept her. So she went down there, and she's been staying there. The... A uh, person who raped her ended up impregnating her, um, and she carried the baby to term. And we saw this, this young 10-month-old uh, there on the campus, and she ended up naming her baby Emmanuel, God with us. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't really have a broad-based public policy solution to some of the immigration stuff in our country. But what I do know is that as Christians, we have to lead with mercy. The Old Testament tells us again and again, remember that you were once a slave in Egypt. That you are to be kind to the sojourner, the immigrant, the one fleeing violence, because remember that you were once a slave in Egypt. Remember that your people were once immigrants themselves, many of whom in very desperate circumstances. And don't forget that. Remember that you're descended from a religious tradition that was once slaves in Egypt. Don't forget that. I don't know what our public policy looks like, but the reality is some of these issues about wages, about social services, we're the wealthiest country in the world with a lot of smart people. We can solve those problems. I know we can. You know what we can't solve? Being cruel. You need to lead with mercy mercy or compassion to have any of this make sense. Now, the good news is there's a lot that all of us can do There are a lot of people working on immigration issues here. There are a lot of your friends that you know are working on this. I encourage you to speak up. Write to your congresspeople. Talk to them about this. Show up at protests. Show up at vigils. And let's make this country the country that it should be. A country of compassion. A country of morals. A country that's full of the good people that I know it is.